Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to RBG Beyond Notorious. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the CNN film RBG and explores the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Poppy Harlow, and I'm joined by CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. In our last episode, we took you through some of the major happenings in RBG's life and career in the 2000s. In this episode, we'll take you back to the 90s. We'll speak with Professor Margot Schlanger, one of RBG's law clerks, from her very first term on the Supreme Court. It was a, an amazing experience to be not just a law clerk on the Supreme Court, but a law clerk for a, a, a judge who totally knew what she was doing. It was her 13th year on the bench, but who was new to this this new office. And so I got to be there as she was establishing her path as a Supreme Court justice. That that was an amazing thing to, to be a part of. We'll also hear from Kelly Sullivan, a member of the first class of women at the Virginia Military Institute, which was the subject of a landmark Supreme Court decision, the majority opinion written by RBG. When we signed up for this, we knew what to expect. We knew that it was going to be extremely difficult, and we knew that there were many people who did not uh, agree with us being there. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. Hi, Poppy. Hi. So let's listen to something that Justice Ginsburg said during her confirmation hearing. This was back in 1993. What a distance we have traveled from the day President Thomas Jefferson told his Secretary of State the appointment of women to public office is an innovation for which the public is not prepared. Telling indeed. So, Jeffrey, she was chosen, nominated by President Bill Clinton, and and he called her a person of immense character. But she wasn't his first choice. No, she wasn't. And, uh, you know, Byron White, who was appointed by President Kennedy, resigned very early in Bill Clinton's presidency. And, you know, obviously a president treasures the opportunity to have an appointment to the Supreme Court. But these were the early days of the Clinton presidency, which, if you may know or remember, was a pretty chaotic time. Right. And they were really not ready at all. Um, and uh, there was not an obvious candidate. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a couple strikes against her. Mm-hmm. Um, one was that she was somewhat older. She was already 60 years old. Right. Um, and uh, mo- more interestingly, I think, is that notwithstanding her past as a, a pioneer in, in women's in, – as a litigator in women's rights, on the D.C. Circuit where she had been since the Carter administration, um, she was fairly conservative. She voted with Robert Bork. She mm-hmm. voted with Antonin Scalia um, with more – frequency than other Democratic appointees. So there were people in the Clinton administration who were a little um, skeptical of her. But her husband, Marty, 
lobbied for her, which I find fascinating. How do you do that? Well, you know, Marty was a formidable figure in his own right. He was uh, a leading tax lawyer. He was, by that point, when they moved to Washington, mm-hmm. he was uh, a professor of tax law at Georgetown University Law Center. So so he had a wide range of contacts, uh, including his client, uh, H. Ross Perot. Right. Um, and, you know, Marty was always an extraordinary backer of Ruth's mm-hmm. career. And he went to work and he wanted uh, Ruth appointed to the Supreme Court. He was pretty close with uh, the state senior senator at the time, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, mm-hmm. uh, who was also a supporter of, of RBG. And the two of them sort of, you know, Moynihan directly and uh, with the president and and Marty sort of through aides kept pushing Ruth's name Wait, to the to the fore. Was that did that seem weird to folks to have the husband calling about the wife getting a, you know an, a nomination for a Supreme Court justice? Well, I mean not I don't think it was that weird. I mean I think it was I think people thought it was kind of amusing mm-hmm. and maybe a little great, but and and I don't know how much how much difference it made. But don't kid yourself, there's always a lot of lobbying that goes on <laughs> right. for when a president has a Supreme Court vacancy to fill. Um, the fact that it was uh, one of the uh, candidate spouses was, I sus- yeah. suspect, unprecedented. Right. But anyone who knew Marty uh, was not surprised. Let's listen to President Clinton announcing her nomination in the Rose Garden in June of 93. First in her years on the bench... She has genuinely distinguished herself as one of our nation's best judges. Progressive in outlook, wise in judgment, balanced and fair in her opinions. Second, over the course of a lifetime, in her pioneering work in behalf of the women of this country, she has compiled a truly historic record of achievement in the finest traditions of American law and citizenship. And finally, I believe that in the years ahead, she will be able to be a force for consensus building on the Supreme Court, just as she has been on the Court of Appeals. Consensus building, and now she's known by many as the great dissenter. That's right. And, and, and I think um, that was an accurate reflection of her tenure on the D.C. Circuit, which has been different than her tenure on the Supreme Court. She was uh, more of a consensus builder on the D.C. Circuit. But uh, and, and I think this is, I have to say, one of the mysteries mm. of RBG's career is that, you know, she let the she she has become a more progressive force on the Supreme Court than she was on the D.C. Circuit. Did she as a person become more liberal as she got older? You know, I don't I don't know that that's the case. Um, you know, being on the Supreme Court is different than being a lower sure. court judge, just in, in terms of the the scope you have. I mean, it, 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 you know, lower court judges are not robots. They have a lot of discretion, too. But, you know, constitutional law gets written every day or by the Supreme Court of the United States, and it changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and that's within the scope of the authority of the Supreme Court in a way that it's not in the D.C. Circuit. But um, progressive, yes. Historic, yes. Bill Clinton was right about all that. Yeah. A consensus builder, not so much. So, But she would go on to impress senators on both sides of the aisle and to get confirmed 96 to 3 by the Senate. As we sit here today, we are awaiting confirmation hearings for uh, Justice Kavanaugh, President Trump. Judge Kavanaugh for now. Judge Kavanaugh for now. Thank you very much. Um, gosh, 
it's hard to imagine anything along those lines. It, How it, much it has changed. It, it's, it's, that, to me, is one of the great relics of this period. Stephen Breyer, uh, who was appointed the next year, uh, was appointed, w- was voted with similarly over 90, over 90 votes. There was this brief period uh, when um, the, the, the court um, was seen as... Well, something that if the president appointed someone who was qualified, mm-hmm. who was intelligent, who had integrity, uh, regardless of the politics, yeah. uh, most senators would vote for them. Um, that is long gone. Um, th- these these Supreme Court seats are now seen correctly, I think, as deeply ideological, notwithstanding the personal characteristics of, of the justices. And, you know, we haven't seen uh, the like of those kind of numbers in confirmation since right. since the early 90s. All of them who have been appointed since then, and it's almost the full mm-hmm. court, um, have all been appointed uh, 50, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, not the, not the 90s by any means. Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, who has been the longest serving member of the judiciary to participate in every single one of the confirmation hearings for the current justices, said during RBG's confirmation hearings, he disagreed with her on a lot, but she deserved a seat. Well, and that was the way a lot of senators approached Supreme Court confirmation hearings in that in this brief period where the senators viewed their role as arbiters of qualifications, Mm -hmm. of integrity, of intelligence, but not of ideology. And that has certainly changed. Why and when? Well, um, there were um, it's kind of gone back and forth. 1987. Uh, six years before Ginsburg was nominated, was the epic fight over Robert Bork, where he was voted down. Because largely. he actually answered questions. He, and, and, you know, he had such a long paper trail of uh, ideologically very conservative writing and uh, a Democratic Senate voted him down. Um, four years after that, 1991, was the even more epic Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. hearings, which were, um, of course, not fought primarily over ideology, but over uh, his personal conduct behavior and, and whether he uh, sexually har- harassed uh, Anita Hill. I think there was a certain exhaustion in the country at that moment mm. over uh, that sort of fighting. Um, uh, the, the, the country was in sort of a, a, calmer, a, a calmer period. After Breyer in 1994... There were 11 years without a vacancy on the court, the second longest period in the history of the Supreme Court without a vacancy from 1994 to Mm. 2005. Mm -hmm. And by the time Bush, by the time George W. Bush had a chance to fill two vacancies in in, in very quick succession, William Rehnquist died, Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down, the country had become a lot more ideologically polarized. And I think since then... Um, the polarization has only gotten worse, and we have seen no more uh, Supreme Court vacancies with uh, votes with uh, anywhere near Anything the numbers like that. Ginsburg and Breyer got. Yeah. Our first guest today sat in on those hearings and served as a law clerk to RBG during her first terms, 93 and 94, on the Supreme Court. Margot Schlanger is here, and she's a professor of law at the University of Michigan and a leading authority on civil rights. Welcome. Thank you so much. We're glad to have you. So when Justice Ginsburg is nominated by President Clinton, this is 1993, you've already committed to serving as her clerk on the D.C. Circuit, right, in the upcoming term. 
You end up clerking for her on the Supreme Court instead. Uh, What was that time like? And what do we not know about what it's like to work with her? Well, so it was a it was a, an amazing experience to be the, not just a law clerk on the Supreme Court, but a law clerk for a, a, a judge who totally knew what she was doing. It was her thirteenth year on the bench, but who was new to this this new office. And so I got to be there as she was establishing her path as a Supreme Court justice. That that was an amazing thing to to be a part of. Um. I think the key to the experience of being a, a Ginsburg clerk was just that you tried to work as hard as she did and tried to live up to her very high ambitions for the quality of the work that got done. And, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't complete. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, uh, no, I was just going to say, and that was very hard. And so, you know, you, you that was that was the thing to do was to to try to live up to that. And so, so talk about what it was like day to day. Like, what did you do? Yeah. So um, the the business of the court, of course, is divided up, you know, into deciding what cases to hear, the cert process, the certiorari process, and actually deciding the cases that are being heard. And likewise, a law clerk's day is is divided up in, in a similar way. So some of the work is just helping the justices process the thousands of cases where people are um, looking to have the Supreme Court hear their case. And on that, you know, you do quite a bit of um, uh, kind of unexciting, just laying out of what the what the stakes are so that the justices can decide what they're going to do. And there's, there's actually quite a bit of that work. In terms of the merits cases, which are the more interesting ones, you help the justice get ready for arguments. And she used to say that the point of writing, we, we would write her a bench memo. The law clerk on a case would write a bench memo. She used to say that the point of the bench memo was so she could read all of the briefs once rather than having to read them twice. Hmm. So you'd try to get her oriented to the case um, in that bench memo so that she could make her way through the case more quickly and efficiently. And then when she was drafting, you'd try to help her with the drafting in a variety of different ways. I mean, she's got very much her own voice and does her own writing. But you, as a law clerk, you try to help her do that again more quickly and efficiently. And for someone who, as we've been talking about on the podcast, chooses every word so deliberately, um, Let's talk about the confirmation hearing. You sat in on at least part of her her Senate confirmation hearing process, and you've described her opening statement as moving. Let's let people listen to a little bit of that. I have had the great good fortune to share life with a partner, truly extraordinary for his generation, a man who believed at age 18 when we met, and who believes today that a woman's work, whether at home or on the job, is as important as a man's. I became a lawyer in days when women were not wanted by most members of the legal profession. I became a lawyer because Marty and his parents supported that choice unreservedly. What was it like for you as a woman, as a professional woman, listening to that, sitting there? It, it, it 
was as amazing as you would think. You know, you 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 graduate from law school and you you're at the start of this professional life, and you know, as a woman, that um, there are going to be difficulties ahead related to gender, and to work for somebody who had made her way through those difficulties and had done it in a way that opened the path for all of the rest of us, it was an incredible thing. Can, can I ask a, a, an impolite question at this moment? You know, in that in that uh, t- excerpt that we just heard, we also heard something we've discussed on this podcast before, the really long pauses mm. in the middle of when, when Justice Ginsburg is talking. What was that like on a day-to-day yeah, basis? You know, it's such a great point. So I remember going into um interview with, with Justice Ginsburg for the job of, of her law clerk, and I actually remember then having a similar conversation when I was her law clerk talking to people who were interviewing with her. And there was a sentence that we would always say, which is that she has the greatest tolerance for conversational silence <laughs> of anyone you've ever met. And that's it, that's the exact phrase. You could ask you could ask ten of her law clerks, and eight of them will repeat that phrase to you. Um, and so you just had to, as somebody who would encounter her, you just had to get used to it. You just had to, when you have this urge to think, oh yes, yeah, she's done. That's a pause. That's my cue. The answer is no. She's not done. That's not a pause. That's not your cue. <laughs> slow, slow it down. Wait, just, wait her out. Just wait. Um, so there is uh, in October of ninety three. She hears her first case on the court. This is the Teresa Harris versus Forklift Systems case. It was assigned to you, Jeffrey. Why don't you give us a little bit of well, why, Margaret? Why, just tell us a little about the case. What, what, what was it? Yeah. So Harris versus Forklift Systems was um, Justice Ginsburg's first um, opinion on the court. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a Title VII case. It was brought under the Employment Discrimination Law, the Federal Employment Discrimination Law. Um, And it was about Teresa Harris, who complained um, that her boss was a sexist pig. So he used to say things like, you know, you're a woman. What do you know? And he would say, we need a man as the rental manager. Those are kind of the unsexualized statements. And he would also say things like in public, hey, let's go to the Holiday Inn and negotiate your raise. Mm. And he would do all kinds of other things about like trying, you know, inviting women in the workplace to, you know, fish coins out of his pockets. I mean, he was a pig. And um, she eventually quit and she sued and said that, you know, no one should be required to work in that kind of environment and she should get back pay. Um, uh, And she lost in the Court of Appeals. Um, but she won in the Supreme Court, and Justice Ginsburg didn't write the majority. She wrote a concurrence. What, why? And why did she write a concurrence? Well, so Justice O'Connor wrote the majority, and there's nothing wrong with the majority opinion. The majority opinion talks about, well, how severe does workplace um, conduct like that have to be before it rises to the level of a Title VII violation, before it rises to the level of employment discrimination. And the the majority said, well, it rises to that level when it is sufficiently severe or pervasive to alter the conditions of the victim's employment and create an abusive working environment. The problem with that is it's kind of vague. I mean, like, if you gave 10 people that test and you gave them all a set of um, kind of facts, 
would they come out the same way? Mm-hmm. It's not so clear, right? So and she wanted all, this specialized standard, right, connected well, to the purpose of Title VII? Yeah, I don't know if I would call it specialized. It's no more specialized than, than that test I just said. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more, as you say, more connected to the purpose of Title VII. And so what she said was, if the harassment is, is severe enough that it makes it more difficult to do the job, mm-hmm. then it's actionable. And I and, and she, she hinged that to the point of Title VII, which is not, it's not a civility requirement. It's a sex discrimination law. She said the question is, are members of one sex exposed, I'm quoting here, to disadvantageous terms or conditions of employment to which members of the other sex are not exposed? And if they are, well, then if the the conditions are making it more difficult for women to do the job, well, then they're severe enough that there ought to be a remedy under mm-hmm. Title Seven. So you also had... Uh, I, I, you're probably the only couple to both have clerked for RBG... Right? No, we're, there not, are not, oh, there's two not, others. Yeah, three? There's yeah. three. There okay. might even be four. That's true. It was just a hotbed of romance in that chamber. <laughs> I think you just worked so often you guys didn't get out to meet anyone else, <laughs> no, frankly. No, to, to be fair, I didn't, I didn't meet my husband until after we were clerking. All right. We didn't clerk the same right. year. So but I, t- I, don't, I, I don't know that, that the, um, this would make such a great sitcom. But, um, <laughs> oh, um, dashing yeah. our hopes. But tell us about going out to dinner. Both of you clerked for RBG. Tell us about going out to dinner, for example, uh, on Valentine's Day, I believe, with, with Marty and Justice Ginsburg. Yes, yeah, so, so there was a time on um, my husband, Sam Bagenstoss, and I were living... Well, he wasn't my husband then. We were engaged. Um, uh, we were getting married soon thereafter, and we were we were in D.C., and um, uh, Matt and Edith Roberts also lived in D.C., and then Susan and David Williams happened to be around, and so they were coming into town, and so the Ginsburgs decided that wouldn't it be nice if they took the, their three law clerk couples out to dinner on Valentine's Day. And so the eight of us went out to dinner um, and had a beautiful meal. And the justice obviously felt very um, responsible for all of us, as I think makes sense. I don't know that any of us would have gotten married without the connection that we had through her. Um, And so she took us all out for dinner and she arranged for there to be, there were these special... um, uh, fortune cookies where she had a little, there was like a little love poem that was inside the fortune cookies about the, the meaning of love in, in your life with, with your partner. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a really, it was a really special event for us all. Can't top that. You know, it's just, I mean, look, she had a great, she had a, I mean, you know, she had, she understood like, that it's great to have an important job, but you got to have a happy life. But right? you do say that you don't think Marty really had to sacrifice that much. I mean, here he has this huge career and, you know, is this equal parent and equal spouse to her? You know, what I think is that is that the the beauty of of the Ginsburg's relationship, at least as it appeared to me from fairly close up, is that they were really equal. So I don't think it was that he subsumed himself to her. Mm. I think he was very, very proud of her and that he, you know, he did move from New York to D.C. and move from being a partner in a fancy law firm in New York to being a law professor and a partner in a fancy law firm in D.C. Right. I don't know that on the list of big sacrifices, <laughs> I would, you know, I, I don't know that I, I mean, the point it's is not... they had an equal marriage where they yeah. were both astounding achievers, 
Um, she's the more famous one, but he was, um, by many accounts, the best tax lawyer in America. Yeah. Margot, it's fascinating and a fascinating look inside uh, the experience that you and your husband had and the fortune cookies and all of it. <laughs> thanks, Margot. <laughs> Thank you, well, Margot. Thanks, thanks for having me. Of course. Next up, we'll hear from a woman whose life was shaped by a majority opinion written by RBG. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right. So, Jeff, let's talk about a major, major case uh, and decision opinion, majority opinion written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that is in 96. That is the case of the uh, United States versus Virginia. Tell me about it. Well, it's the case about VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, which is which is a unique uh, educational institution in the United States. I've been there. It's a very interesting place to visit. Mm. And uh, it looks a lot like West Point in the sense that there are uh, the 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 students wear uniforms. Uh, the the curriculum is very much focused on military uh, science and and related matters. Uh, but it was very it was different from West Point in in one two very important ways in nineteen in, mm-hmm. in the early nineteen nineties. One was uh, it was run by a state, not the federal government. Mm-hmm. And unlike West Point in in the late in the early nineties, it was single sex. It was only men and. So so uh, some students, some women students who wanted to go to VMI uh, sued and they said the state of Virginia could not discriminate mm-hmm. against uh, them by not admitting them to this single state, single sex state institution. And that's what this case was. That about. it violated the 14th Amendment. Correct. It was it denied them equal protection of the laws. So in this, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion which would ultimately allow women to be admitted. And and some of what she wrote is women seeking and fit for a VMI quality education cannot be offered anything less under the Commonwealth's obligation to afford them genuinely equal protection. And another thing that struck me in her decision is she wrote to aspire, achieve, participate in and contribute to society based on what they women can do, that that's all they're asking for. How consequential was this? And, and, And especially in her career. 
Well, it, it was and is, uh, perhaps sadly for RBG, uh, the most important opinion she's written as a mm. Supreme Court justice. And here it was 1996. She's been on the court for another 22 years and she hasn't written an opinion as important, which I think is indicative of the fact that she's a majority been, opinion, you mean. a majority yeah. opinion that, that she has not been in the majority in so many important cases. But but this case really established the idea that um, well, just to, to back up a little bit, Virginia's defense in this case was that there are single-sex options that the state provides besides going to VMI that allow a similar education for students. And, and what RBG's opinion really established is that there is no such thing as equal to um, single-sex education when the state is involved, that that right. that that the very act of of forbidding women from going somewhere, uh, to going to a school, is going to be unconstitutional in any setting. She's saying separate but equal doesn't fly. Separate but equal, well said. Separate but equal doesn't fly in the educational context. Let me be clear: the justice did not write doesn't fly. <laughs> right, didn't fly. Right. So that's. But, uh, but she is fly. There, so there you go. Experience. Let's listen to part of 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 her decision, reading it from the bench. A remedial decree must cure the constitutional violation. In this case, the violation is the categorical exclusion of women from an extraordinary educational leadership development opportunity afforded men. To cure that violation and to afford genuinely equal protection, women seeking and fit for a VMI quality education cannot be offered anything less. Her dear friend, but her ideological opposite, Justice Antonin Scalia, wrote a sharp dissent. He called it politics smuggled into law. Right. I mean, his his point was um, there's nothing in the Constitution that says uh, women have to be treated exactly the same as men. And it's worth remembering that the Equal Rights Amendment did not pass. It was never ratified. It uh, was never ratified. And, and Scalia's point was that uh, states can make judgments about what's best for women and what's best for men uh, without the second guessing of the federal courts. And that was Mm -hmm. a profound disagreement between them. Um, uh, Ginsburg won this argument with her colleagues Mm -hmm. on this one, but it was not. The the argument wasn't over either. She won it in an interesting, very strategic way. And she decided not to equate gender gender with race because she was worried she may lose the six-vote majority. She may lose Kennedy and O'Connor. Can you talk about that? Well, um, one of the um, the sort of long-term principles of the Supreme Court, uh, going back to the 1930s, is that if there is a distinction drawn in uh, in any sort of law or administrative Mm -hmm. procedure between between the races, the Supreme Court will apply what's called strict scrutiny, which means they need a super super impressive justification mm-hmm. to uh, allow the the distinction to up, uh, to be upheld. In fact, strict scrutiny has almost always meant that the laws will be struck down. One of the great legal debates that really still is going on is whether gender discrimination gets strict scrutiny the way the way race does. Another similar legal argument that's going on is does discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation 
get get strict scrutiny. Also, not entirely resolved. And uh, Ginsburg decided not to wade into that particular debate, in part, as you suggest, because of the fact that she might lose um, votes uh, from from her more conservative mm-hmm. colleagues on that. So what she she focused the opinion more on whether it was in fact a equal opportunity for mm-hmm. women rather than how you look at the story of whether you know any any sort of distinction between men and women she she said under the evidence in this case women did not have an equal opportunity to get an education comparable to VMI mm-hmm. if they didn't go to VMI so that was the basis for the opinion rather than applying uh, strict scrutiny, scrutiny. Which, which is so much associated with race. So Kelly Sullivan is with us, and she's a member of the first cohort of female cadets at VMI. Kelly, thanks for, for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. You say in the CNN film RBG, we were here not to break history, but to grow it. Tell us more. Correct. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I... <laughs> VMI was not on my radar uh, when I was looking for schools. Um, I was actually destined for a service academy, um, but VMI contacted um, uh, my home and and asked us to come up for a visit, and so we did. Um, and I I had no idea that the case was you know going on. I, I was in rural Georgia, so it really wasn't on uh, it wasn't on my radar, and um, you know so. My intentions and and my reasons for going to VMI were completely, you know, opposite of what people thought um, because I was going there for an education and I was going there um, to to uh, uh, play Division One track and field um, and I was going there for this incredible experience that everybody talks about and um, when Justice Ginsburg talks about the fact that it's there is no similar experience in the world. Um, it, it really isn't. Uh, there is no environment, uh, there is no opportunity, and there is no school like VMI anywhere else. Um, Ke- Kelly, and I ma- realized that on my visit, yes. Kelly, how many men and how many women were in your class? Uh, so we had 30 uh, women go in and 1,300 men, I believe. <laughs> wow. What was that like? <laughs> um, you know, honestly, uh, there was so much going on around us. It, it it, it was all a blur for the first few weeks. Um, you know, they shaved their they shaved our heads. They put us in men's uniforms, um, and we were treated exactly like the males, um, with the exception that they could tell that we were women. We had just a little bit more hair than the men did, um, and and we were absolutely were you know pulled out and we were um, mm-hmm. targeted as a result of being women. Um, but the positive thing was that the school had a very close eye on what the cadets were doing. Um, and they ensured that the women were, to some extent, protected. Um, now, things did happen. Um, you know, I was threatened on several different occasions, um, you know, by alumni who had come into barracks or by other cadets. Um, but to some extent, you expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we signed up for this, we knew what to expect. <laughs> we knew that it was going to be extremely difficult, and we knew that there were many people who did not uh, agree with us being there. Um, so you absolutely were singled out for, for your sex, mm. and, um, and, and we just had to deal with it. RBG came back to VMI for the 20-year for the uh, anniversary of the first cohort of women, you among them, being allowed to enroll. 
take a listen right. to part of this from her speech there. So how did it feel to be one of nine women in a class of over 500 men? You felt you were constantly on display. So if you were called on in class, you felt that if you failed, if you didn't perform well, you were failing not just for yourself, but for all women. So that's her, Jeffrey, talking about her experience being one of nine at Harvard. But it sounds very similar to Kelly, what you I mean, what you experienced. And and you've even said RBG used to be a, quote, bad word there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, at VMI, we were definitely, we called it the fishbowl. Um, you know, when we arrived, there were cameras everywhere. Every time we came out of barracks, there were cameras um, as close to, to us as possible, watching every move. Um, but the more important uh, observation was that of our uh, alumni and of, of the Corps of Cadets. And, and we did. We had to be, we had to be better. We had to have better grades. We had to um, conduct ourselves in a manner that was fitting of of a VMI cadet, and it was very difficult because you were constantly um, being scrutinized. And when I look back at it, I think, wow, I, I I didn't realize how much we were being watched and and what a responsibility it was to not just be there for myself, but to be there for women as a whole. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, it it didn't dawn on me until I graduated. Do you feel like you've been accepted as a VMI alum in the two decades or so since you graduated? Oh, absolutely. Um, It was all very interesting because while I was at school, um, I I had several alumni come up to me and say, you know, why are you wearing this opportunity uh, for men? Uh, Why are you here? Um, was one of the... um, the favorite questions that we got, um, and I would respond with, I ask myself that every night before I go to bed. Um, but it's, you had to take it with, with humor, and, um, and you had to just answer as honestly as you could. Um, and honestly, it, it just, it was a difficult situation that, um, that, you know, going into the first alumni meeting, going into the first alumni get-together, it was very intimidating. Um, but I got up. Um, I was asked to, to greet the group and to talk to the group and give an impromptu speech, and I did that. And, um, and ever since, I, I've been completely embraced by the alumni network, and, and I've been on several of the alumni boards and, um, and the Cadet Club board, which is our athletic program. And, uh, and the reason that I have the career I have today is because of the VM, VMI network. And what is your um, career, it, Kelly? Uh, so I am a program manager lead for Google Fiber. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. <laughs> so uh, did you meet Ju- Justice Ginsburg when she came uh, to speak at that 20-year mark? I did. We had, we had a nice chat. It was, it was lovely. What'd she say to you? What'd you say to her? Well, I said, I, you know, I obviously was honored to meet her, and, um, and she was very, um, she's, she's, I don't know if delicate's the right word, but she's a very proper lady um, and, and very kind and sweet um, in, in her interaction. And um, it was a lot like talking to my grandmother, um, you know, and, and just having so much respect for what she's done um, for women. Um, from the beginning of her career, you know, going to Harvard and being in the first class to continuing to push, 
you know, the, the women's movement forward, it's just incredible. And I, I got chills. Um, and I was a little choked mm-hmm. up at, at one point. Um, but, but she said to me, she said, you know, I told her I was in the first class of women. Um, I told her I was a mechanical engineering major and, um, and she says, Oh my goodness. And, <laughs> and she says, um, that must have been really difficult. That must have been really an incredible, incredibly hard time for you. And I said, it really was. Um, and, uh, but I just thanked her for the opportunity. I said, I, I wouldn't give it up for the world. Hmm. Um, there, there is no other path I would have taken for my life other than to have gone through that difficult time at VMI. And I learned so much about myself, about my own confidence, about my own abilities, and quite frankly, about the ways of the world and just how, you know, even if you're facing adversity, you just have to hit it head on and, and keep pushing. Uh, you, you have stayed in touch with VMI. You do alumni work. Um, how would you describe the situation for women there now? Hmm. You know, that is one of the, the things that makes me the happiest is going back and talking to the women that are at VMI now because we tell them stories about the first class and the second class and, you know, what we experienced. Because when we attended VMI, we still had all male classes ahead of us. Um, so that was a, that was a big deal in, in, in barracks and in the core, um, that they were an all male class and they were very proud of it. Um, and we tell these stories to these young ladies and we say, okay, you know, it, it's all the jargon, all the VMI jargon, all the military jargon. Um, but when we have these conversations, they just sit there with their mouths wide open. They can't understand, um, how it could be so different for us. And, and that's a fantastic thing. That means mm. that the Institute is doing what's right. And the women that are going there are the right kind of women. And that they're upholding the legacy, you know, that we, ha- we had hoped <laughs> when we left uh, that would follow us. And they just they can't comprehend what we had to go through. And that is a beautiful thing. Kelly, thank you for being with us. And, uh, and congratulations on all you, you have achieved. Well, thank you, guys. This has been an honor. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much. And Jeffrey, didn't um, when you talk about the camaraderie that she must have felt with other women at VMI, 30 out of a class of 1,300, didn't Justice O'Connor um, hand the majority opinion to, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to write in this one? Well, it's, it was actually um, – the, the, they did – that, that she was, she could have kept it for herself. In other words, right. G- O'Connor could have been the author of this opinion, and she knew how much uh, this issue meant to Ginsburg, and so, as you suggest, handed it off. The other thing that's particularly great about this moment in Supreme Court history is that if you read the opinion, um, Ginsburg cites several of the cases that she argued. Uh, as a women's rights lawyer in in the Supreme Court, so you can imagine the the level of satisfaction that she felt, um, sort of, you know, the the full sort arc of art saying I laid the I helped lay the groundwork for this exactly, and and she did, um, and and it really is a um, an extremely uh, satisfying experience for her. Perfect segue into our next episode. So thank you all for listening. This has been our 90s episode of RBG Beyond Notorious. Our next episode, we go back to the 80s and we look at the role that she took on at the D.C. Circuit and the unlikely friendship she found there. They just kind of hit it off. Why, why did two people become uh, fast friends? It's, it's not always entirely clear. Um, people just click. They clicked. Her story continues next. Don't forget to watch the CNN film RBG this fall.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.